Alrighty, guys. Now we are here welcoming on very special guest, Kevin Kelton, former writer for SNL. Worked on big shows like Night Court. Uh, worked on the Jay Leno special back in 86. Um, mm-hmm. Welcome yourself, Kevin. Kevin, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a second. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, Kevin's all the way out in L.A. right now. We're sh- we all wish we were right now with him, actually, but... <laughs> He's not on that level where he can fly us out there and do this over there. So here we are from abroad. And we're not on that level where we can just make those trips quite yet. <laughs> You're supposed to fly me there. I would have come to you. Show you the ropes over here in Canada. You would have gone off the plane. And I did a show up there. Oh, in the I know. Mid-90s, I did a show called Boogie's Diner. We're going to get into that a little bit later, Kevin. Don't oh, you worry. I'm sorry. Jump the gun. <laughs> You're giving away all the stuff, man. <laughs> All righty. So just briefly, you let's talk about your start and how you got involved with writing and the creative business. And you said you're from New York and you moved out to L.A. because that's where the opportunity was. Let's just go back in time a little bit to the 80s and 70s and see where you got your start from. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, when I was in college, my older brother, Bobby, started doing stand up comedy in Los Angeles. Now, he was not a funny guy. So this came as a surprise to our family. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, he started working at the comedy store and somehow became a regular there. And he would send tapes, like little cassette tapes of his sets. And I'd listen to them and uh, come up with ideas that I thought were funny and send them to him. And we would write back and forth uh, and kind of hone bits. And then when he moved back to New York because he thought he could get more stage time on the East Coast, mm-hmm. I would hang out with him at the comedy clubs when I wasn't in school. And I'd go with him from club to club to club, watching him do his sets and then sitting in the back of the room and watching the other comics do their sets. And what I didn't realize at the time was I was getting a, an education in comedy mm-hmm. just by hanging around with him and his friends. Hmm. Education by association. Yeah, osmosis. Yeah. <laughs> um, where did you go to college? I started at Boston University, but I couldn't afford to go there all four years. By the way, back then... Boston University was considered way, way, way too expensive for my family because it cost, listen to this, $4,500 a year. Oh, I wish. That was considered like, oh my gosh, who can afford this? College. So, um, after my freshman year, I transferred to the State University of New York in Albany. Uh, so again, I was studying business administration because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And who does? my brother was doing stand-up and I would hang out with him and help him write his set. Then there was enough material that I wrote that he didn't think was workable. There was enough of that that I put together my own set, started doing a little stand-up in coffee houses and what have you. Mm-hmm. And then I fell in with a group of people at college who were working at the, the, the college radio station doing a comedy show there. And we found each other because back then, this is 1970, I'm going to say 6, 77, to get Saturday Night Live in Albany, you had to go to the top of the dorm tower because that was the only place that had a an antenna high enough to mm-hmm. get the signal from like three three towns over. Because right, right, a lot right. of cities wouldn't carry SNL back then. It was considered too subversive. Mm-hmm. And Albany actually did not carry Saturday Night Live. So everybody on a Saturday night, the people that had no, no sex lives, we would all <laughs> gather at the top of this tower and watch <laughs> SNL. And at the end of one show, the credits start rolling. Now, I was somewhat uh, informed about the comedy world because I was hanging out with Bobby at the clubs. And I knew that one of the standups that we knew from the improv in New York was a writer on Saturday Night Live. His name is Alan Zweibel. So as his name was going by in the credits, the written by credits, I yelled out, Alan Zweibel, I know him. And somebody across the room at the same time yelled, Alan Zweibel, I know him. And we both <laughs> looked at each other. And it was like love at first sight. And, uh, that isn't we that started something. talking, and it turned out that he knew Alan from where he grew up in New York. And, of course, I knew Alan from the clubs. And this guy's name is Mark Rapport, and he was into comedy, and I was into comedy, and he was doing this comedy show on the radio station. So I started working with him and the other guys who were doing the show. And I ended up spending the rest of my college days going to classes, and I did pretty well in college. But mostly I was focused on comedy writing in this, this radio show. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of launched me into comedy writing. And by the way, 40 some odd years later, 
Mark Rappaport is still my best friend. Wow, look at that. <laughs> is he out in L.A. now, too? Yeah, and he became a television writer, had some success, wrote a, a, a Roseanne script, has written some movies for Hallmark. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So is that how you kind of got your foot in the door to SNL? Uh, no, that yeah. came much later. So uh, toward the end of my college days, I've told this story so many times, uh, I went, you know, I thought I was going into some kind of a business career, maybe advertising, maybe marketing. I really didn't know. But I had a suit ready and I had a resume and I thought I was going to go on job interviews and get a job. So about two months before I was supposed to graduate, I heard that there was going to be a seminar on campus by a guy who had written a book about how to get your first job. So I go to this seminar and the first thing he does is he tells everybody to take out a piece of paper and write down the numbers one, two, and three. And next to number one, put down if you could be anything in the world, what that would be. And then number two, your second choice. And number three, your third choice. So uh, in high school, uh, I loved hockey, ice hockey. I used to play it all the time. It was the thing that kept me sane. So I put down hockey player as my number one choice. My second choice was comedy writer. And my third choice, I don't even remember. So it's this guy says, okay, cross out numbers two and three. <laughs> And we're going to spend the next two hours focusing on how you can become your number one choice. And you guys can only see me from the, the neck up. I'm all, I'm all of about five, six and 142 pounds. <laughs> I knew there was nothing that this guy said about resumes and job interviews that was getting me in the NHL. <laughs> so I dropped down to my number two choice, which was comedy writer. And I spent the next couple of hours listening to this guy, but thinking to myself, why am I going into business when I want to be a comedy writer? Mm. So I went back to my room at that time. Now Mark and I were roommates and I said to him, I think we should write a spec TV script. And he didn't even know what I was talking about. And I explained to him this process. I don't know how I knew this process, but I explained it to him. And uh, he said, well, we don't have time for that. I mean, we've got finals coming up. He had to write some plays because he was a theater major. He had to write some one act plays. He said, we're too busy to be writing a television script. And I knew my roommate well enough to, to pull the one Trump card that would change his mind. I said, well, what if I do all the typing? And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> so we spent the last two months of my college career. He was a year behind me. But we spent the last two months of my college career writing a TV spec script. And uh, we finished it. I sent it out to my brother. He showed it to a couple of people in L.A. They called me up with some nice compliments, and I was hooked. So I graduated. I had never taken a writing class in high school or college, never taken a formal writing class. So there's a place in New York called the New School. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it. Mm -mm. And they have sort of cutting edge avant-garde types of courses and, and, um, and, and studies. I crashed a television writing course there. I literally crashed it. I did not register. I just showed up on the first day of classes, sat in the back of the class. When the teacher read the, the roster of everybody in the room, she read all the names and then she said, did I forget anyone? And I raised my hand and she said, what's your name? And she wrote it down and I was in the class. Oh my God. So I took this <laughs> Are you class kidding me? Week. I wrote my second script because I already had the first one that Mark and I had written. I wrote my second script. And then with those two scripts in my arms, I got in my car and drove out to LA and the rest of course is television history. Wow. Wow. Good old days. Jeez, eh? yeah. that's really amazing. significant television history, but television history. Now, have you tried to just say your name? They'd be like, I'm not seeing you on, on any four of these lists on my computer. And you're like, all right, well, worth a shot. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. I, don't I had a backup plan. <laughs> so how did, like, what path did your career take you to wind up writing for SNL? Okay, so when I got out to LA, uh, the first thing I did was I started hanging out at the comedy clubs there because that was the world I knew through my brother. And uh, I had a day job. I was a bank teller for a while. But I would go to the clubs at night, try to sell jokes to some of the other comics, did some stand-up, became a regular at the clubs. Uh, I wasn't really very good, but I was good enough that I could make an audience at least tolerate me for 20 minutes. Usually <laughs> laugh, sometimes not laugh, but they never you know, burn the club down. So is that where so, you kind of realized that you couldn't perform the jokes, but you could have the jokes written and you knew how to make people laugh? Well, I could perform them. I just didn't think that I had had it in me to become a star. I, mm -hmm. I didn't think that I was going to be 
a Jay Leno or a David Letterman or somebody like that. So I always knew that I was performing my material to be seen as a writer. That was okay. what I was comfortable Just with. Just as a showcase almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it worked. Um, people saw me. They liked my stuff. Some people bought stuff uh, that they used. And one day, uh, a guy named Mark Berkowitz, who's, that's his legal name, but he changed it for television because it was another guy named Mark Berkowitz that screwed up that name. Um, he changed it to Mark Summers, and you might see him now on Nickelodeon and some of the other cable uh, networks. He hosts a lot of game shows and stuff. But uh, he was a, a fairly well-known game show writer. And he had been offered a job on the show Crosswitch that he couldn't take because he was too busy. And he asked me if I wanted to go in an interview for it. So, of course, I said, yes, I'd love to. I went in and I interviewed with this guy. And he had already hired somebody the day before, but he recommended me to somebody else. And that led to my first job writing on a game show called Face the Music. And I did that for uh, about half of a year. And then I got hired on a sketch comedy show called Fridays. I don't know whether you guys remember mm, Fridays, I feel like but I, it was like ABC's knockoff of Saturday Night Live. I've definitely like that's ringing a bell somewhere. You yeah, on that and YouTube it came on the air like late 1979. It ran through 1982, I think. And I did a season on that show. Uh, Michael Richards was in the cast of that show. Oh, really? Larry David was in the cast of that show. And um, so that was like my intro to late night sketch comedy. And from there, I worked on a series of other sketch comedy shows. And then several years later, I heard that SNL was looking. I sent in some material. They liked it. They wanted some more material. I sent in a second batch of material, and they hired me. Wow. Now, getting into uh, that's SNL. Awesome. Yeah, really. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's such a like, just step-by-step process. From game show writing to knock off SNL Friday late and, night show. And, and a lot of it was like a fluke. Like I could have gotten into sitcoms first and right. just been a sitcom writer, mm-hmm. but I couldn't break into sitcoms. So I got into sketch comedy. No name SNL. Like <laughs> <laughs> the Walmart brand of SNL and then right to SNL. That's amazing. So what does the writing process look like for sketch comedy or SNL more specifically? Yeah, because it's different for different shows. Mm-hmm. SNL, when I was there, the writer owned his own ideas. So some people worked in a team of two or three. Some people worked solo. But you came up with your own ideas. Very occasionally, the producer might ask you to write something because he, he saw a hole in the show and he needed uh, an Eddie Murphy sketch or he needed something for the host. But mostly, you came up with your own ideas. You wrote them on Monday and Tuesday night. On Wednesday, they compiled a a script of like 30 to 40 sketches. And then all of the cast members and the hosts would sit around the table and read them out loud. And the writers were there and the other key production team members were there. And based on the the result, excuse me, based on the response in that reading, the producers would put together the the nine or 10 sketches that were going to go to to the dress rehearsal show on Saturday. Hmm. So... Because you were, you were writing for them from eighty three to eighty five, yeah. And so you said the writers own their own material, if you say so. How much influence do the guests have? Because we saw mm-hmm. you did one like Robin Williams was one of the guests while you were there. So how much influence right. does a person like like that have when in the writing process? Process, sorry, if any. Right. Um, well, it depends on who that individual is. Somebody like a Robin Williams or somebody with comedy chops would have a lot more input than an actor or a politician that was hosting the show right, mm-hmm. right. or a singer that was hosting the show. Um, so, you know, I worked hand in hand with some of them, but mostly I liked to write for people. Uh, I like to write on my own, but the, the, the uh, hosts were, you know, a lot of them were great and they'd go from room to room and they'd say, uh, here's an idea that I've always had that a, a character that I would like to try to do in a sketch or you tell them what they were working on and they'd say, I think I can do that. Or I think I can't, uh, they didn't write a lot. Now there were a few exceptions. Tommy Smothers, uh, when the Smothers brothers hosted, yes, I'm that old, but Smothers brothers hosted Saturday night live when I was there. Uh, he wrote a lot of stuff. Um, Michael Palin from Monty Python, Mm -hmm. uh, liked to co-write a lot of stuff. And I I co-wrote a sketch with him. It didn't get on the air, but, it was a real honor getting to co-write with Michael Palin. No doubt. Um, 
but mostly they just, you know, they just said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. The, the key thing for a really good host is to trust the writers and to trust the process. If they can, ju- it's like, you know, falling backwards and letting somebody catch you mm-hmm, or right. falling into a mosh pit. If you can just trust that you're going to get caught and that nothing's going to go horribly wrong, you'll be fine. Right, right. Because it's a pretty all hands on deck show, right? Because you have all the writers, all the producers, and then you also have Lauren Michaels in there. Like, is Lauren Michaels, I just want to know how much influence each person has from like the writers to the producers to the actors on the show and even Lauren Michaels. Michaels. Yeah, like how much veto power does he have over oh, one episode? He, he has full veto power. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was there, I didn't, Lauren wasn't the executive producer when I was there. I was actually there in those interim years when he had taken a hiatus. Mm-hmm. But I know enough about the process to say, you know, the writers write, uh, you see everything performed, but then there's a very small team of people that put the actual show together, and Lauren has absolute veto power. And on the other side, if he likes something and he wants it in the show, it will be in the show, mm-hmm. even if the network says don't do that. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't mind crossing lines, would he? <laughs> now I'm going to make a prediction here. I've told this to my friends and I've written it on Facebook, but I will make it public here. I predict that this coming season or maybe next season will be the last years of SNL. And I'll tell you why Lauren Michaels created the show, as you know, and executive produced it from 1975 to 1980. Then he decided he was done. And he thought that the network was going to put the show to bed, but it was too much of a, um, a profit center for the network. So they hired another executive producer that didn't work out. They hired yet another executive producer, Dick Ebersole, who was the person I worked for. And the show ran for another five years. Then Lauren decided he didn't like, you know, what he was doing in movies or whatever else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he wanted back in. So he went back to the show in 1985 and became the executive producer again. He's been running that show since 1985. Now, I'm looking at you guys, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you weren't even born in 1985. <laughs> um, he's been doing this show for most of his adult life, and he's well into his 70s right now. Jeez. And he has to not only, he's working six days a week, including staying up until 1.30 to 2.30 every Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And when you're in your 70s, that's not as appealing as it is in your 20s. That wasn't a part of the retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to think that this guy at some point is going to say, I'm a multi, multi-millionaire. I've got other projects, you know, going, he does movies. He, he produces, I think the tonight show, he produces, uh, the, the Seth Meyers show. He produces other shows. Um, he doesn't need SNL anymore. And I think when he decides, you know, I'm just too old for this, he's going to say to NBC, I want to close down the show. I want to go out while the show is still strong. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that he has it in his contract that he can do that. So you heard it from me. It's a prediction. I have no inside information other than what I just told you. But don't be surprised if, in a, if at, you know, toward the end of this year or maybe in another year, maybe after the 2020 election, you hear that SNL is closing shop at the end of a season. Yeah, well, that kind of leads into what we wanted to ask you because about SNL, because the shift of it from like it's heydays in the eighties and nineties and whatever till now it's kind of taken a dip and you say it's not going to last. Do you think it's just because of the workload uh, workload for Lauren or do you think it's because the quality of the show? No, I think the quality is still relatively good. You know, people always compare it to either the original cast or the Eddie Murphy days when I was there, or they'll compare it to, the Will you know, Ferrell, the, the Will Adam Ferrell Adam days. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say. Um, the show is always, whatever it is at the time, you know, any 90-minute show is usually going to have two or three great sketches or, or relatively good sketches, mm-hmm. some sketches that you may like but your friends won't like, and then a few that really suck, and you wonder how they got on the air. <laughs> That's a typical episode of SNL. And by the way, it always was. Even back in the heyday, people don't remember how many sketches didn't work during those original five-year, 90-minute shows? Um, I think that he's just, you know, like I said, he's, I'm guesstimating, he's 74, 75 now, mm-hmm. give or take a couple of years, okay? Yeah, you don't want to do with that when you're 78, 80 years old. 
You know, I mean, some people want to be president <laughs> when that happens, but I don't think Lauren wants to be staying up until like, like I said, two o'clock, two thirty on Saturday nights. No, um, yeah, doing the very- same thing he's been doing ever since he was twenty-two years old, <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, or thirty years old, you know. It's like. Yeah, like you've just been doing it for so long. He may as well exercise the ultimate veto power and absolutely just close the curtains and, yeah, on the whole and why thing. why not right? take the show out while it's still good? Why wait until he has a right. couple of really crappy years? And it's blowing and then up his face. people will look at it and say, well, it, had, you know, it really wasn't that great a show or it, right. it lived past its prime. Yeah, Taking note of Seinfeld's book and end off on a high, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so... Kind of back to SNL because you said these uh, the hosts would have to trust the writing process. Um, how much would there be ad libbing on the show? Because it is a live show and sometimes people mess up. Was there a whole lot of that, or was it um, like was that kind of forbidden? Yeah, radically not as much as the regular viewing audience thinks, mm-hmm. but there are some people who did it better than others. Eddie Murphy. He didn't ad lib a lot, but he had the capacity to ad lib if a sketch was going in the tank. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember once Don Rickles hosted the show and he ad libbed so much that we had to cut two sketches uh, during the live show <laughs> because it was running so long. But um, mostly they, they do what's on the on the script. People think that it's all I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and say and said, uh, well, you wrote for Saturday Night Live. What does that mean? Did you, did you write what they said? Like, well, of course we did. That's the job. <laughs> what do you think? Well, they make this stuff up. But people actually do believe that the cast makes up the lines as they're going along. So would you ever just see like a script you wrote just be absolutely gone off the rails by the end of it? And how does that feel as a writer if you just see the total abandonment yes. of what you've yes. written? Um, we, so we wrote a series when I, in my second year, I was working with a couple of other guys and we wrote a series of scripts, excuse me, a series of sketches called first draft theater. And the idea was the first drafts of really famous dramatic Mm -hmm. or comedic Mm -hmm. pieces and how bad the first draft was in comparison to what the finished (laughs) product. So, you know, there would be writer flubs in the middle or really, really stale dialogue and stuff. So the first one that we wrote was uh, based on The Big Sleep, a Raymond Chandler novel, and that worked really well. And then we wrote a second one um, based on 12 Angry Men, and that played really well. So the producers wanted a third. So we wrote the first draft of the Bible, and the sketch was supposed (laughs) to be, you know, hearing, again, the first draft of God as he's composing the Bible. Well, one of the actors in the show by then was a guy named Christopher Guest. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the voice of God and he was in the narration booth. Well, uh, if you've ever seen somebody who's doing off-camera voice narration, they usually, they read the script page and when they're done with the, a page, they throw it over their shoulder behind them and just read the next one. Well, Chris was doing that, but a couple of pages stuck together and he threw the ball <laughs> over his shoulder and got lost. <laughs> And now I didn't know this at the time. I found out later that's what happened. What I know is I'm in the back of the theater watching the sketch play. And all of a sudden there's silence. And it went on for 11 seconds. Now I've gone back and counted it watching the tape. But in the moment it felt like 30 to 45 seconds. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody's going, what's going on? What's going on? And the actors are looking around because they didn't know what to do because God's supposed to be speaking and nothing's coming over the sound system. And then, you know, we see this guy that I told you we worked for, Dick Ebersole, running under the bleaches, yelling, he lost his script, he lost his script. <laughs> and he was running to give him another copy. Well, finally, they got it back. But, like, in that 11 seconds, believe me, my heart must heart, have stopped yeah. two or three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 11 seconds in show business feels like an eternity. And I'll tell you another one. This happened on that show Fridays that I mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a sketch... Back then, Star Wars was just coming into vogue. I think the second Star Wars movie had come out. And Woody Allen had released a movie called um, Stardust Memories. And so I thought it would be funny to combine those two premises. And we had a guy who did a really good Woody Allen impression in the cast. So I wrote a sketch called Star Wars Memories. Star Wars Memories. And the idea was Woody Allen against Darth Vader. 
That's the basic premise. Well, the guy placing playing Darth Vader was Michael Richards, who, of course, you remember from the oh, Seinfeld show. Wow. This was back before he was famous. But during the sketch, he's in the whole Darth Vader costume. And there's, uh, you know, the whole thing going on with Woody Allen and there's lightsaber fighting and everything. And toward the end of the sketch, Woody uh, gets a lightsaber away from someone else and he turns on Vader and Vader is supposed to make his escape. Well, Michael made a hand gesture like you win this one. And he made a big hand gesture and he knocked off Darth Vader helmet. <laughs> so he's standing there on camera with his face <laughs> exposed, his whole head exposed. And he didn't know what to do. And he just started vamping. And then he just ran off stage. And another <laughs> actor uh, followed him who wasn't even supposed to leave the sketch. And again, the audience didn't even know. They were laughing because they thought that was part of the sketch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm sitting there pulling out my hair. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's live TV. And that's what made, makes live TV great. No, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Wow, Michael Richards, man. Must have been someone to see him do his stuff for that show. It was, and I got to, to write a couple of pieces for Michael. I even went over to his house one time and helped co-write a piece with him. Uh, really intense guy, really nice guy, and a brilliant comedic mind. Mm -hmm. he, uh, yeah, because the way he can integrate it into acting, and it's just, because I know his writing mind is, uh, not writing, but like it's just his mind comedically is great, but I just know right. through Seinfeld, obviously, like the way he would act and just make a movement part of the joke and he was just great at it but um i'll tell you a story about the seinfeld show larry david is a is a family friend of mine he was actually my brother's best friend in their early days of stand-up comics so he was into my house and around and i was exposed to him a lot so when he started doing seinfeld i ran into him at the improv in los angeles and they had just done four episodes Wow. And I had seen the four episodes and the network was considering whether to, to pick it up for more. And I, you know, I sat down at a table and I told him how much I liked it. And he goes to me, really? You don't think Michael's too big? You don't think too big, meaning, you know, over the top. Right, right, right. He said, you don't. He was really questioning whether that character worked. Wow. And I said, oh, I think he's really funny. <laughs> and of <laughs> no course, not because of me, but they kept doing it and it and it. But, but Larry's initial instinct was that that character wasn't working. Just too over the top. Yeah, he yeah. thought it was too wild and uh, silly, yeah. Because I heard, I mean, what do I know? But I just saw some like interview of some sort, um, and Jerry was saying that the second he saw Michael Richards in that first audition, he was like, yeah, that's our guy. Yeah, they, they were sold on Michael, and, and Larry knew Michael from Fridays many years earlier. But once they got on the stage... You know, it became what we now know to be a great ensemble. Mm -hmm. But in the early moments, you don't know whether it's clicking or not. Jerry was very dry and he was he didn't have really any acting chops to start. And they only brought Julia in, I think, two or three episodes in because the network had said you need a female presence there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the the original show was just supposed to be Jerry the and the guys. George character or with a with a couple of other people that came in for a little bit of color. Hmm. The idea of making a four-person ensemble, that just developed. Wow, that's crazy. That is yeah. nice. That is crazy. So, speaking of Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she yeah. I, I love her. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. And she was on SNL during the time you were there. Yep. Just, talk, like, before we move on to your other stuff, just to talk about some celebrities that you worked with, um, like, what was it like working with, like, her? Eddie um, Murphy. Eddie Murphy. He has some writing credits on some episodes during your time there, like, are you, were you guys ever in a room together working on stuff? Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about Julia. She had come to the show a year or two before me. She was wonderful. We were all young back then. Um, you know, I don't think that we utilized her as well as we could have. The writing staff adored her, and we knew she was really talented. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's hard to figure out how to how to, uh, you know, showcase that talent in a sketch comedy show, especially when you have bigger names that you're supposed to be servicing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she got relegated to a lot of bit parts or, you know, um, weekend update style in ones where we should have been really have her as a main manager of her, her, her talents more, but she was wonderful. She was great. Um, I loved writing for her. Eddie, uh, I was, 
you know, I, first of all, yes, you're in the room with all of them at some point. I mean, that's the nature of the show. We never actually sat down and wrote a sketch together, but I wrote several sketches for him. I wrote a couple of Mr. Robinson's Neighborhoods. Mm, I wrote mm-hmm. a couple of Buckwheat pieces. Um, I wrote some sketches that were just premise sketches where he played a character. And we had, I mean, we were pals. I didn't go out hanging out with him, but we had a good relationship. He was very kind to me. Um, he once did me a solid, uh, about a year after he had left the show, I was back in Los Angeles at the improv cause that's where I was all the time. <laughs> and he came in and he was with like an entourage of people and everybody's looking, you know, Oh, there's Eddie Murphy. There's Eddie Murphy. It was like a big deal. And the people at the table that I was sitting at were saying, Hey, you should go over and say hi to him. And I'm thinking like, I'm not even sure he knows my name (laughs) (laughs) and saying hi to this guy. So they're all going, in the meantime, he had gone upstairs to, they had this like little VP lounge, the VIP lounge. And we see him coming back down the stairs. And I watch Eddie as he walks across the room and every eye in the improv, you know, not in the club because the club had a show going on, but in the bar area, every eye was on Eddie Murphy. He comes down the stairs, walks straight to the table I was at and says hi to me and asks me how I'm doing. Now, he didn't have to do that. You must but have felt I thought like a that million was a bucks. really nice thing to do. <laughs> After he left, I would just be like, yeah, you saw everyone. Exactly. Like, everyone That's saw exactly that, right? Everyone, yeah. yeah. This guy. Go to him. He came to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eddie? Oh, we go way back, man. You don't even know. <laughs> Wait, do you guys know that guy? <laughs> um. What has changed in your creative process over the course of your career? I can't stay up as late. (laughs) 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 That is a terrific question that I don't know that I've ever been asked quite so directly. So let me try to give you a really good answer. I think I'm a better writer now than I was back then, um, but I'm also more discerning. I don't sit down to write something unless I feel really confident that it's a good premise and I know where I'm going with it. So I'm much more choosy about what I write now. Mm -hmm. But I do think that like anything else in the world, you know, until you, you get senile and I'm not far from that, (laughs) but until you get senile, you only get better. And unfortunately, as you probably know, the entertainment uh, industry doesn't necessarily revere that Mm -hmm. they would prefer younger, newer, fresher. Mm -hmm. So, Unfortunately, I think a lot of really good talent gets lost in those years when you're not the new flavor of the month. But um, my process is more confident and more discerning. So it's definitely more more uh, a quality over quantity now, whereas probably back then you're just writing as much as you can to see what works. And now it's like, I know this is going to work, so I'm going to put time into this. Compared exactly. To Rather yes. than do 50 half-assed jobs, do 25 or even 10 just really good ones that you are very confident in. Right. Right. So, um, after SNL, you helped out Jay Leno with this special. Um, you were, well, that's being kind. I had a job (laughs) working on a Jay Leno special. There were other writers who were equally as talented. And that was just when he was getting recognized by NBC as a possible successor to Johnny Carson. And, um, but I, you know, I hung out with Jay a lot. He would invite, he always had this habit of inviting people to his house to hang out in late night, you know, sessions. I went to his house a couple of times in the Hollywood Hills. Um, you know, again, super nice guy. I don't know anyone who's ever said anything bad about him as a person. A lot of people will say he wasn't as funny as, uh, as Letterman or he, he used, you know, he, he played the system to get the Tonight Show and he stole it from Letterman or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But but a terrific guy who will do anything for anybody. Yeah, I saw him drive past me once on the freeway when I was in LA. You love that story, man. Yeah, that's like, about you, all I got. You love that story. <laughs> out of all the three times he's been to California, that's the one that always comes up. Yeah, so me and Kevin got quite a bit in common. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> he drove past me once too. He, years later, and again, you know, you know these guys, but then... You go on to work on another show. They go on with their incredible careers. Mm-hmm. And you figure they don't remember me. You know, they meet thousands of people. 
So one day I was I was on a date with some woman, I don't remember who it was, and we were standing on a street corner in Burbank, and a big flatbed truck is driving down the street, and we see sitting on the truck is Jay Leno in a, in a full suit, a suit and tie, sitting in a rocking chair with a camera crew. The hell's going and on? He was doing a, a, some kind of a, a bit for The Tonight Show. Oh, okay, okay. They're driving down the street. He's on the this flatbed truck in a rocking <laughs> chair, and I'm standing on the corner with this woman, and he looks over, he goes, Hey, Kelton, hey, Mr. Kelton, how you doing, Mr. Kelton? <laughs> <laughs> that was the coolest thing ever to happen on a date. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a bad impression you got. Hey, yeah. Hey, you're on that date. Chin you ever saw. The two things that <laughs> surprised me when I worked with Jay in person is one, he has the most beautifully intense, like blue. I can't even describe the color, but they they look like contact lens. Yeah. But they're bright, piercing blue green eyes, and his chin darts out from his face in ways that you can't really tell on television. <laughs> and you may not know this, but when he started doing stand-up on television, I think there was some people, I think it was the Merv Griffin show or the Mike Douglas show or something, where it was produced by Westinghouse. And Jay did one or two shots as a stand-up on, let's say it was Mike Douglas. I don't know whether that's the show or not. But... Um, then the word came down from Westinghouse not to use him again. And the reasoning was, they said, his chin is so big, it will scare children. <laughs> I can relate to that Jesus. statement. I can relate to that statement a little bit. I've had a couple nightmares like, there about was, chin. Like, when we watched that special, like I, I, it's been a long time since I've even seen a Jay Leno. Like I, used to, I, mm-hmm. I never really got into his comedy. So, And if I did, it was more so through his late night show and that's when he's older and then seeing him young still with the biggest chin like in show business i was like it doesn't get smaller (laughs) here's the thing to know about jay by the time he took over the tonight show he had kind of sold his comedic soul to be commercial because he wanted to be able to play in nebraska and montana and the places that you have to play right to host a national late night show Mm -hmm. but when he was a younger comic starting out in the clubs and then doing his first set of television shows. Mm-hmm. He was considered one of the best stand-ups in the country. Oh, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Everyone revered Jay Leno. Even Letterman will say he learned more watching Letter- watching Leno on stage than any other comic. Mm. What do you think that, like, what, what quality is it that just makes him that, that much it's, better? It's hard for me to say what quality. He commanded the stage... He knew how to bring an audience in and he knew how to create a premise, a comedic premise that whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, whether you were young or old, male or female, that almost everyone in that room would agree with. Mm -hmm. He knew how to get to the heart of a comedic premise and find that the twist that everyone would be on board with. Wow. So he just had that command on that common denominator almost like no, there was no way you couldn't find something in there truthful or funny. Yeah, he wouldn't well, divide a room. Like said, he would he bring found it that one take on everything mm-hmm. that everyone wanted to agree with. Mm-hmm. And he was just brilliantly funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that, well, that's kind of important. That helps. That, that helps. helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on to Night Court now, the television show you did there. You worked on it for three seasons, if I'm not mistaken, from my IMDB uh, knowledge. <laughs> yeah, two seasons. Two yeah. seasons? Okay, because... Was it season eight and nine? Yeah. Okay, because I thought I saw somewhere on season seven you had writing credits for just like an, a single episode. I'm not sure. Mm, I don't think so, but whatever. All right, whatever. So season eight, you wrote a handful, and then you had producing credits on the rest, and then season nine well, was... Well, first of all, what happened was, so after I had worked on virtually every late-night sketch comedy show and every knockoff of Saturday Night Live, that's <laughs> I had run out of uh, shows to work on, so I had to get into sitcom. So that was a little bit of a career struggle, but I eventually made the shift and I got a couple of shows and that led me to Night Court. So in the early 90s, I got hired on Night Court. Uh, They hired me as the credit was executive story consultant. And I could go into a whole detailed diatribe about what TV credits mean. That's not important. 
<laughs> I was a staff writer. And uh, that whole first season, I was a staff writer. I wrote maybe two or three scripts that year. Uh, okay. Then I got uh, brought back and I was promoted to producer. And I wrote a few more scripts that season. And I think I wrote five night courts altogether. I still get residuals from that show. Lovely. Um, they're, they're not a lot, but they still come in. <laughs> Pays for coffee. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was sitcom. Was that a thing you didn't want to get into then? Or was it you just mainly wanted to stick to sketches? No, I always wanted to get into sitcoms. My particular path just took me through sketch comedy first. And then because I got so well known in sketch comedy, I got pigeonholed there. And agents were telling me they couldn't sell me into the half hour market. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just a, a frustrating thing that, you know, when I was done with SNL, I was ready to transition over to half hours. But those jobs weren't coming. So I kept taking sketch comedy jobs right. that were nice jobs. And I was lucky to get them. But I really was. That wasn't my first choice. My first choice would have been to go on to right. a half hour. And that didn't happen until a few years later. How did you find that transition once you finally did make it? Was it an easy one to make or was there yeah, a lot of adjusting? Yeah, and I liked it a lot better. Yeah. Um, half hour writing for me is much easier than sketch writing because if, if you want to write good sketch comedy, the quality of the premises has to be very high. We're not talking about hee-haw or some you know mid-level sketch comedy show that thinks it's funny, but it's not. If you're writing at SNL level, or Friday's level, or something like that, you have to come up with really good premises. And that is hard. Writing the actual sketch is not as hard as coming up with the premises. And so that that would literally drive you crazy because it's all you could think about. You were constantly searching for the next great premise. Right. Mm-hmm. Once I got into half hours, you were only responsible for coming up with a handful of stories a season. So you had more time to develop stories and try to come up with unique stories. Right. And then you'd write them for, you know, it'd take a couple of weeks to write a script. And then between scripts, you just did your staff work, which was working in the writer's room, helping rewrite other people's scripts. Mm-hmm. So the pressure, even though the hours were just as long, the pressure was much less intense. And mm-hmm. I liked that better. Because the audience going into watching an episode of Saturday Night Live, expecting something new, fresh, they haven't seen. Whereas when they go to Night Court, they kind of know what they're getting into. Exactly. If they've already seen an episode or so. So the storyline's right. already there. Whereas SNL, right. they're just looking for something's going right. to knock, knock that, their socks off again. Today, even though I think that half hour comedy has, is significantly more sophisticated than it was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But people still tune in because they like the characters and they like the the relative premise of the series. So they're not as aware of the individual story episode or episodic storytelling narrative, but the writers are. And, you know, you really put a tremendous amount of work into getting the story right. I think a lot of people who just are, are casual consumers of television don't realize how much work goes into crafting those stories. Even the people that are heavy into television don't realize it. They just watch it all the time. <laughs> like me. <laughs> Do you think that like now 30-minute television is more sophisticated because it's almost like a science that's been going on and being done for so long? Or is it because yes. the level of comedy or the um, components to it have been more refined rather than just it getting older? Well, it's both. both. It's both. It's because, because the time has, has passed like cars have gotten more sophisticated and planes have gotten more sophisticated mm-hmm. and you know, everything gets more sophisticated. Entertainment has gotten more sophisticated. If you go back and look at what was entertaining audiences in the 1920s and thirties, <laughs> you know, it was like uh, a junior high school play com- compared to what people do now. Right. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in 20 years, what we're looking at now will seem less sophisticated mm-hmm. than what we're looking at then. Which seems hard to believe because you see some, like you watch some stand-up specials now and the, the jokes are just so clean and refined. Like the way they tie it all together. Um, some of these guys like the Chappelle's, the Kevin Hart's and these guys, even the Bill Burr's, like the way they make the joke come together at the end, it's just so clever. And they, yeah. Um, and, and here's the other thing. Now, that's a great point that you just brought up. And by the way, I don't remember which of you, what your first names are. Otherwise, I wouldn't address you by your name. <laughs> <laughs> You're just two guys on camera. To come on, Kevin. We're almost 40 minutes in now. <laughs> And get off my lawn. <laughs> but I'm glad you brought up stand-up because 
the same applies there too. When my brother was coming up, everything was observational comedy and you mm-hmm, could get away mm-hmm. with a set, which you were talking about airline food and, you know, what it's like to own a pet or the you know, latest relationship. The story, the, the standup that people are doing now is so personal and so story driven that it's a much higher art form mm-hmm. than what standup was in the 80s and even the early 90s. Yeah, I think it's great. I've had some very interesting conversations with some of my other comedy friends about the Chappelle special. I thought it was terrific. Me I have too. a lot of friends in the business who thought it was lazy, who thought it was in poor taste, who thought he was, quote unquote, punching down. I'm not even sure I know what that means. <laughs> but did you guys see it? Because I just I, thought it was brilliant. I saw it. I thought it was, I thought the way he talked about controversial topics was brilliant because I thought yeah. the way he tied it all together and it was just, I thought it was very clever. I, I, yeah. I do know there's some articles out there that think otherwise, but I think they just, I've seen, I've been seeing a lot of, I haven't, I haven't had the time to watch it yet, but I've just been seeing a lot of mixed reviews. I've yeah. been hearing a lot of people say it was better than his last one. I've heard people say they're both shit. I've heard, you know, like it's just all over the place, but from what you've said, I, I mm-hmm. I've only heard that I've heard good things. I thought it was great. And me and, Kevin both think it's great, so maybe that's... Yeah. And also, by the way, if you if you forget about the content for a moment, the performance is really good. Yeah. That is a guy that is working an audience and working a stage, as I will say, as well as maybe Richard Pryor did it. And believe wow. me, that's a high compliment. Wow. Yeah, wow. You're talking about someone that is at the top of his yeah. game in terms of technique. Wow. Yeah. And just now, like you said how it's so much more story driven now stand up and it should, it is, it's just the way it is now. And people that want to go up and start stand up and they have a five, they have five minutes to go on stage and give it their all. Well, that's, if you're trying to tell a story, that's one joke really. Right. Right. So it's tough now. Whereas like in, back then you could probably speak of this better than I can, but back then it was like, you get like four, three, four jokes down in five minutes. Cause it's just almost quicker observational right. jokes. Almost one liners. Yeah, not oh, like, you'd not get, like, you'd but get, like, you know, you could get drive a firearm, right? Six laps in, in a minute back then. Yeah, if exactly. Really, if you were really, tat, 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 you know, trying mm-hmm. to shot, uh, machine gun your audience. And no, you're right. Now it's a slow, it's a different uh, um, art form. It's slower. It's more personal. It's definitely more story driven and first person driven. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of people like Chappelle and Kevin Hart and, you know, we're not the name we're not supposed to say, Louis C.K. It's it's more issue driven or taking on topics that are considered taboo. And that's what stand up should be. Yeah, it should yeah, be reverent. It should take on the man. It should, you know, push people's buttons, push yeah. boundaries, so, you know, I, cross you lines. Know, and I, you know, when I'm driving, I have serious radio on and I'll occasionally listen to the stand up channel. And I'm just amazed at the the quality of, of stand up today compared to what we thought was real quality right back in the 80s. Yeah. So from seeing it progress from the eighties to now, where do you think it's going to go in the next five, 10, 20 years? Uh, hopefully become more political, hopefully take on more um, of those. I'm blanking on a word, but it's a word that we all use those, um, issues or those uh institutions that you're not supposed to take on Mm -hmm. or being able to say things that are on pc right Uh, you know one of the things that drives me nuts is the whole pc thing that is you know is tied to really good movements like the me too movement is a really important development in this country and i'm all for it but it has a lot of bad side effects like the Al Franken situation mm-hmm. or like there are people that will lose jobs because, you know, yeah. Harry was looking at Sylvia, uh, you know, in the lunchroom in a way that made her uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the boss doesn't know what to do because they have no training in this. Exactly. So people are going to be, you know, they're going to see their careers either held back or they're going to lose jobs because <clears throat> there's no, there's no playbook on. Them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with the N word. It's crazy now that, you know, Dave Chappelle can use it with impunity. And I think that's fine, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should be, you shouldn't be able to call someone. You know, I would never be for that. Mm-hmm. But to just say, you know, 
if, if we were having a, a conversation about racism in America and we wanted to use it in the abstract or talk about the history of that word, mm-hmm. the fact that we cannot say the full word to me is insane. Yeah, it's um, I see what you mean, because I watch people like Chappelle's or even the Hannibal Burris. Yeah, I was right? going to say that's when you have beef with because yeah, they will say the full word um, to get laughs, whereas. If I were to say the full word to get laughs, I'd get booed off stage like we saw with Michael Richards, <laughs> right. and it just didn't right. work. But you didn't um, use it to get laughs. No, 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 no. You know but I mean? that's I, a different context. I think it's it's you got to be careful with with it because it for me it's just like if a fat person goes on stage and you start making you start making fat jokes, it's like to me it's just too too easy. Too, it's too easy. It's the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Well, it is low hanging fruit in terms of like you said, an, a black performer relying on it. By the way, and it's the same as any performer relying on the F word, which I would mm. say, but I don't know what your your particular um, censorship rules are. This honestly um, might be the longest we've ever gone on one of these things without saying the F word. Okay. <laughs> we'll keep it going. Well, that's, 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 that's break. But I mean, a lot of stand-ups say fuck just to get a response from the right. audience or because it, it times out the line better. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that, it, that can also be lazy. So there is an argument to be made. You know, Dave did use the, that word a lot in his special. It didn't bother me, but it, it did seem to get a little bit over the top. A little redundant. Um, but my, my greater point is no word should be verboten in the English right. language, except maybe the word verboten. Because anybody that uses that is just a highfalutin asshole. But, um, but no, but I'm joking around. But no word should be so horrible that it cannot be said in public. Or topic, really. I, I just think so, that what we've done with the N-word gives it power. Mm. I think it lost power when people were allowed to say it. And again, no one should say it to someone else. And if they do, they should get their nose bloody. Mm-hmm. That's different than than saying, like, again, I'll probably get into trouble. I got into trouble on my own podcast. Bill Maher, on his show, on Real Time with Bill Maher, was interviewing someone. And that person said, you know, Bill, you should come out with, uh, you know, with me in middle America and see, you know, and work on a farm for an hour and see what that's like. And Bill Maher made a joke. Now, I'm going to say the word now, and, and hopefully it won't be a problem. But this was Bill Maher's line. He said, and you can keep that out. That's okay. (laughs) And they could guess what I said. (laughs) We could do it like how the Jay Leno special, they collected all the letters to find out who killed David Letterman. You you actually saw that? You remember that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Me and another writer named Kevin Rooney came up with that premise, and we thought it was so brilliant. Oh, man, was that belabored. (laughs) (laughs) How... That 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 like special was pretty all over the place. Like, what was what was the creative process for that? There's a lot of people who worked well, on it. Like, what what was the goal behind that? Like, what did Jay Leno say to be like, hey, let's make like who? What, how did that come about? Well, first of all, this was the first time that Jay was doing sketch comedy, and to be frank, he wasn't really comfortable with it. I think so. You, there were a I lot of you things that the that. came up with like, that I, he didn't feel he could pull off. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we were also trying to come up with what we considered really cutting edge ideas. And it just, I don't know. I mean, there was a great writing staff. We liked Jay. We had some good people in the supporting cast. But that special itself, also the, the, the people that produced it weren't really comedy people. They were Jay's managers. I don't think there was anyone other than Jay that had a creative vision and one of the things that I've learned through the years is when a TV show works, especially uh, a talk show or a sketch comedy show, it's because someone, one individual, had a creative vision that was very clearly defined and they were able to articulate it down the line to the people working with them and under them so that we could execute that vision. And when a show works, that's because the person at the top had that capacity, whether it was David Letterman, whether it was Lauren Michaels, whether it was, you know, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld on Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. But someone had to have two things, a clear creative vision 
and the capacity to articulate it. When shows don't work, they're missing one of those two elements. Right. So speaking of shows that don't work, you... <laughs> and I worked on many of those. <laughs> How about the sitcom you tried to start in Toronto? Yeah, let's get some Canadian ties in here. Yeah. Like this back to Canada somehow. Localize this story. You know, okay. Canadians First love to all, do that all the time. Uh, it was started by some other people and I was brought on to be a staff writer. It was called Boogie's Diner. Mm -hmm. I was brought on to be a staff writer in 1994 and then became the head writer the following season. Um, it was supposed to be about a group of kids that worked in this um, kind of gap-like clothing store that was also a diner. It really existed, by the way. There was a chain of places called Boogie's Diner and they were trying to, they were trying to you know, expand their brand. Just commercialize. Like huh. um, and there was some production company named Franklin Waterman that produces thing. I never met either of those two men, mm -hmm. but their liaison to the show was a fellow named Tim Conway Jr. And he is of course the son of Tim Conway, the famous comedian. And so Tim was kind of like our studio exec, Doug McIntyre, who's a terrific friend of mine, who's uh went on to become a very successful radio uh, you know, morning DJ and talk show uh, personality in Los Angeles. He was the head writer who brought me on. He brought on a couple of other uh, staff writers. We created this show as best we could, but it was supposed to be like a show for teens, not a show about teens, but it was supposed to be a comedy show for teens, like mm -hmm. a Nickelodeon show. Mm -hmm. Disney and show that's almost. what we had to write. And it, you know, it was the best we could do in that in that subgenre. And then what kind of happened to it? It just died off out of lack of interest or? No, we, we, we produced a, a lot of episodes, like either 80 or into the hundreds. But there were a lot of episodes that were produced. It was syndicated. It ran. It wasn't a giant hit. And then they just stopped producing them. Hmm. It happens. Uh, one of the people in that cast was uh, James Marsden who's now a fairly successful movie actor. Mm -hmm. He was just a young kid. He might've even been in his teens at the time, uh, but he was one of the actors in the ensemble. And again, clearly the funniest guy on the, on the set. Uh, and we loved writing for him. We knew back then he was talented. Didn't realize he was going to go on to become a, an amazing leading man in movies, but we knew he was talented. Um, so how long did you work on that show for? Sorry. I did two seasons there. Then I came back to L.A., did a pilot for the FX network that never went anyplace, and then got hired on Boy Meets World. Mm. And how was that? Boy Meets World, was that a level up, or was that just same old, same old, just for a different show? Well, you know, I, I have to admit that I think I made some poor career choices in the 90s, and one of them was, that was, again, a TGIF show that was meant for teenagers, and I wanted to be writing on Fridays or Friends or Frasier or right. Mad About You. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be writing sophisticated comedy. Mm -hmm. So I kind of resented my workplace, which is never a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm pretty sure they sensed that. So I did the job. You know, I, I got brought back for a second season. I was bumped up to supervising producer at one point. Mm -hmm. But I never felt like I was really writing the type of stuff that I was um you know, I didn't feel like I was living up to my potential. Mm -hmm, right. So I actually, even though the show got picked up for another season, I actually asked if I could get out of my contract to go and take another job on another NBC show. In retrospect, that probably wasn't a smart thing to do, but it's what I did. Well, it's understandable because you get into the business of writing and creating something because you want to do stuff that you like. And having a vision for that stuff, right? And then when you're stuck yeah. doing something that you not you don't necessarily like, it's easy to get frustrated and be like, why am I even doing this for this show? I want to be on another right. show. And you, you know, back then we didn't use the term branding, but you know, I was trying to brand myself as a writer and I didn't want my brand to be, um, what's the word diluted mm -hmm. by credits that I didn't really believe in. By the way, nicest people to work with. The kids were incredible. Good staff of writers, Michael Jacobs, who was the executive producer, talented man, terrific executive producer. So I have no qualms with any of the people there. I just wanted, like I said, I wanted to be on one of the, the cool shows or one of the right. more sophisticated shows. And I, I let my, you know, my pants get a little bigger than they should have been. <laughs> yeah. 
Is that even a saying? <laughs> we'll make it one. We'll coin that one. It might we'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be too big for my britches. That's what it is. My pants got too big. <laughs> that one sounds better, though. <laughs> That's not, no one knows what a britches are. <laughs> my pants got too big. <laughs> um, after moving back from... So did you live in Canada while you working on um, Boogie yeah. Steiners? Yeah, so they, they brought us up to Toronto for the first season. And we lived in some beautiful high-rise hotel right in the middle of downtown Toronto. The Sutton Place, does that ring a bell? I don't know. And then the second season, they moved us to um, a different hotel that was closer to where we were producing the show, which was Henderson. And we lived there. But I lived there you know, for a, um, almost a year, mm-hmm. through a pretty tough winter, and then into the summer and fall. And now you're and like, I'm really uh, moving to L.A. Toronto. <laughs> uh, so... After moving to L.A. and now having sort of an experience with the Canadian film and television industry, what are the comparisons you can draw between the American and the Canadian industries? And Okay. Well, first of all, let me preface this again by saying that was the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Or what? Right. Obviously, when yeah. You, of some the time. Years, 25 years later now, I'm sure things have changed drastically. Mm-hmm. So I can only comment on what I know, which was what was happening back then. Mm-hmm. television in toronto back then was minor league baseball compared to what i was used to in new in york LA. LA. Yeah. um the 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 reason that they brought us up was they had started the show with uh canadian writers and they were awful and the show was just it didn't make sense um so they they realized if they wanted this project to have any legs they needed to bring in american writers and there were all sorts of rules about, you know, how many Americans you could have on a particular production versus how many Canadians. And they had to balance all of that out. There were a lot of technical things that luckily I didn't have to get too into the weeds about, but I knew they existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, again, the crews were nice. The people were lovely, but the talent was just not the same. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, you've been removed from Canada's film and television industry, but what have you seen from, like, what can you say about what you've seen in the past 25 years after leaving? Well, you know, when I watch a show, for the most part, I don't know whether it's produced in Canada by Canadians, right. by Canadians in America. I, I just don't know. So I have nothing to, yeah. you're not sticking no around for the credits. I'm, I'm sure that they do great work. It's be more Americanized no, just, now almost, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Take, tell me there's a chance though, eh? I beg your pardon? You tell me there's a chance, though, for us. <laughs> Where's there's a chance? Get out of Canada. That's not true. Here's the other thing. People think you have to come to Los Angeles to succeed in the business. It's one path, but it's not the only path. Mm-hmm. Right. And the great thing about the entertainment business now is it is becoming day by day more democratized. And people are creating their own content. They're doing it in L.A., but they're doing it in other states and other countries. And it's really good content. And I think it's a fantastic thing for the entertainment industry. Uh, the fact that the, the quote unquote studios and networks are losing some power and independently produced projects are becoming more and more successful is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So just turn out product. Be as good as you can be, and if you've got what it takes, you will rise to the top. Well, that kind of gets that kind question of, at the end. Of yeah, the <laughs> we, we were going to end it off by asking any advice you'd give to, you know, two young couple. individuals trying to navigate their way through the entertainment world. Yeah, maybe they have a podcast. Maybe they have two podcasts, maybe, maybe a website, they, write some blogs. Maybe they do a little I bit of stand-up. I have two words for you guys. Dental school. Dental school? No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're telling me I got to change? I'm already 21, man. My mom's, my mom's not going to be happy like about that. Stand up and not get a reaction. I was waiting for that laugh, but it never came. I was like, um, no way. I'm not, this is, I, I really, I, we, I was I like, is go there, apply. I was like, I'm going to go and get a job. For a second, you had me thinking there's some underground courses at dental school <laughs> that teach you no, how to write. <laughs> there is, there is no piece of advice other than to believe in yourselves, uh, Take a bit of a risk, especially at a you know a younger age. And again, I don't know how old you guys are, but you're clearly not in your 40s yet. Um, this is the time to to roll the dice in your life. Now, at a certain point, if it's not working out, 
you might want to think of another way to pay your bills and be able to raise a family and everything. But early on, go all in, create a lot of content, um, take feedback, but learn how to also take rejection because rejection, rejection in and of itself should not stop you. Now, if you're making bad content and people are giving you feedback that suggests you might want to go in a different direction or alter your approach, that could be helpful. I'll, I'll end with one quick story. For sure. Uh, Please. I had already been working as a, as a working TV writer in 1981 or so. Uh, I'd worked on Fridays. I'd worked on one or two other shows, but I still wanted to get into sitcom. So I was a relatively young comedy writer. And my hobby back then, I was also, and I mentioned earlier that I liked ice hockey. I was a coach of a boys hockey team. That was how I spent my, my Sundays. And somebody told me that one of the fathers of one of the players was a manager of comedy writers. And maybe he could help me out. So I got my script to this guy. It was a spec Barney Miller script. And this guy read it and he called me up. He said, meet me at the Santa Monica mall on such and such a day. I want to talk to you. So I meet this guy at the mall and now I'm like 24, 25 years old. And he was a guy in his forties or fifties, gray hair. He was a, a fairly well-known manager. I figured he must know what he's talking about. So he asked me a couple of questions. What do you want to do with your life? Why are you doing this? How do you get into it? What, you know, what is your goal? And then he says, the reason I'm asking you all these questions is I read your script and I got to tell you, I didn't think much of it. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't like the story. I don't think you understand the show or the characters. And I really don't want to see a young guy like you waste your life trying to pursue this career. That is not going to happen. I'm sure that his name is Harvey. I won't mention his last name. I'm sure that he really believed he was doing me a solid. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was a a, a bad person or he had a a, a mean intention. Mm -hmm. He really believed he was saving me a lot of pain and aggravation. Mm -hmm. But he could not have been more negative about my prospects for a career. Now, some people might have heard this and melted, you know. Mm -hmm. I heard it and said, well, you know, he's telling me I suck, but I've been paid to write comedy. I'm going to believe those people and not this guy. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I had the advantage of having some positive reinforcement ahead of that. But I knew enough to know this was one person's opinion and it wasn't necessarily the opinion. It could just be now, not for that. If I had gotten that feedback from 100 people, then maybe I should have done something. <laughs> then it was time for dental school. <laughs> yeah, right. And it may still be. Listen, I'm in my 60s. I could still go to dental school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think you got the better gig now. You got your own podcast going. You're teaching some uh, courses at UCLA, teaching teaching how to write, correct? Or Teaching t- half-hour television writing. I've also got two kids in college, and I'm engaged to uh, the most wonderful woman in the world, and we have a great relationship. Congratulations. And I've got Rosie the dog, who has not made a peep during this, this uh, podcast. Good girl. It's a good dog. <laughs> good dog. There you go. Hey, I really enjoyed this, guys. Thank you so much. No, oh, thank this you. Was, this this was, was amazing. This was amazing. Thank you very much. We're so happy that you agreed to this, and we could somehow get you on. <laughs> this was such no a good problem. reason to cut, cut class. Now all you have to do is cut it down to 22 minutes. It's no problem. <laughs> uh, Kevin, it was an honor, man. Yeah, thank you honor. very much. This was this was really nice, really amazing. Thank you very much. You're welcome, and, and best of luck to whatever you do. I, I have a feeling you guys are going to do very well. Thank oh, you very that much, means a Kevin. lot coming from you. Thank, thank you. you very much.